Hey, I'm um, Beck. Thanks for doing the Bible reading. Good morning to you. My name is Shabu. I have the great joy of being one of the pastors at Canterbury Gardens Community Church. If you're visiting us for the very first time, uh, this is our outdoor service over the next few weeks at this stage. As long as the weather is uh, good, we will plan to do services outdoors, and which means the service won't be at 10.30. It'll actually be at 10 a.m. So if you just dropped in and went, I thought your website's at 10.30. I'm really sorry uh, for making you come a little bit later, but we will at the stage... Um, do, that's the plan. So who knows with Melbourne weather, it could change last minute, but you know, it's part of the adventure. Um, this morning, we come to the very uh, last chapter, or chapter two of the book of Haggai. Over the last couple of Sundays, we as a church uh, have been reminded that God has been speaking to Israel by the prophet Haggai and calling the people to get to work, to get to work to rebuild the temple. Uh, to wake them up, the very apathy that they're in. And last week we were challenged to not get stuck, to not get stuck by looking back to the past, the good old days. And in that, as we do that, we'll actually miss seeing in what God is doing. And no matter how bleak the world may seem, God's Spirit is always at work. And we are actually called to join Him in His work. This morning, what I want us to consider are two things. Firstly, an unclean people in chapter 2, verses 10 to 19, and a gracious God in chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. Would you join with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, as we sit, listen, watch, consider your work this morning, through your word, would you overwhelm us with a sense of, in our hearts of your grace. Lord, I don't know every single person here, but you, Sovereign Lord, you know every single heart. And Lord Jesus, I pray that it's for your glory. Holy Spirit, I need your help. Still our hearts to receive your words in front of us. Empower us, Holy Spirit, to apply it to our lives. For Jesus' glory alone. The words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be all acceptable to you, Lord Jesus, for your glory and your name. Amen. Uh, growing up in the family that I did, and I've got to be careful here because my parents are here, is that there were some interesting questions asked. I don't know if you've asked this question, these questions or they've been asked of you. And usually when you hear these questions, you kind of go, that's an obvious answer. Well, the questions might be, would you like a discipline? I'm yet to hear a kid say, yes, please. Shabu, would you like vegetables with that? I get asked that still, and I'm wondering, is that an option? Now, this is obviously, again, with any sermon, there's usually an illustration to get your attention, and that's a silly illustration. But the idea we need to understand is that throughout the Bible, there's constantly beautiful rhetorical questions. Uh, questions often asked by God or a prophet or someone to stir the person to consider their own hearts, uh, to answer this question with an obvious answer. And that's what we have in the verses in front of us in the very first section. God has now come again to speak. And thus the Lord has said, and he comes to the priests. And this is the question in front of us. Have a look with me again. On the 24th day, the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest, what did they say? No. And Haggai said, if someone who's unclean by contact with dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. So with every work of their hands and what they offer, there is unclean. God now comes and speaks. And the very audience that's in front is the priests. Uh, In the Old Testament, these are the spiritual leaders. These are the ones who give rulings over the matter of the law. And the question is asked by God. And this audience then, to them, they know this is an obvious answer. No. Now the priests in that time had to give an interpretation of how the law is addressed, particularly over issues. Now you've got to remember, right, these were the men who had that role. This is before Bible apps. This is before Google This is before the various things that we have access to. The priests had the job to accurately give guidance to people directly. And this is what they're doing in this moment as that question is asked. And the various passages all the way from Genesis to Deuteronomy, they spoke on an issue. Now this question, it revolves around meat that has been dedicated to sacrifice. And at the thought of the time was holiness or making something holy could be transferred to a person or an object. That's in passages like in Leviticus 6. You can look that up later. So the question is asked by Haggai, can it become holy? The answer is no. Then a second question is asked, what if someone becomes unclean because they have touched a dead body? And that's based on laws again in Leviticus 21, 22, number 6 and chapter 19. And what the question is, what happens? Well, the reality is they are disregarded as unclean. Now, for us, as we sit on this warm day under this, we may look at it and go, oh yeah, of course, on this side of the cross and the empty tomb, the temptation is to go, oh, that's Old Testament stuff. Unclean, not really interested, sounds really ridiculous. Friends, what, what it's doing for us even today is to consider this. Being religious and doing religious things does not make you clean before a holy God. Another way to say is to have a relationship with the God of the universe who is holy just because you do religious things does not make you clean. Uh, You know, in a world that we live in now, the idea of clean and cleanliness it's quite in front of us, isn't it? Uh, many years ago, probably not as much, but the idea that there's this virus around. Masks, hand sanitizers. You know, uh, maybe perhaps you have this question asked, have you been in contact with anyone with COVID? Uh, and, and the question is no. Or perhaps you know someone who has had COVID and, and they feel this sense of shame or, or uncleanliness. Friends, the Bible is very clear, and perhaps you already know this, there is actually a greater virus that has infected every person. That's sin. And perhaps you're someone who's exploring the Christian faith, maybe joining us online, or you've just 
come to our service today. You may say, I'm not religious, Shabu. Maybe uh, when the census came out, you ticked the, uh, the, tick the no religion box in the census. Perhaps I want you to consider this. Maybe you're doing those good things. Those good things that make you feel, you might not say it out loud, that you are actually a good person. You recycle accordingly. You give to charity. You're on the donor list. You're actually involved in volunteering for non-for-profits or community groups. And perhaps you might even say, I'm not really that bad, Shabu. I'm a pretty good guy, a good person. Perhaps for some of us, we've grown up in religious circles. We go to church, we're involved in church and ministry and life. Perhaps we read the Bible every day. We give. We serve. We maybe even go to a Christian school. Perhaps you're a pastor of a church. Perhaps you're someone who ensures that you follow the letter of the Bible and what it says. And you love telling other people they're not doing the right thing. Friends, this is this, what's described as our religious offerings before a holy God. These outward expressions, whoever you are, if you have not really dealt with the real issue that we all have, we're actually bringing unclean worship to God. And this is why God in his grace lovingly rebukes the people. See that in verse 14? Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer, there is unclean. For the people then, they thought that if they tick the religious box, what's expected of them, everything should be fine. They thought that if they bring the various offerings that are required of them, even the sin offerings, they should be fine. Even if perhaps they're actually living amongst the unholy nations around them, they would be okay. But they're actually very blind to the very heart issue that they face and we face. That their very heart is defiled, their very work is defiled before a holy God. In their very nature and their very being, their heart is infected by sin. And so what they offer is unacceptable worship to God. So what is required is something needs to change. Something needs to happen. And God is the only one who can do it. Friends, here's the thing. Whoever you are, to grasp the grace of God, your heart and my heart need to be confronted by our sin. Not out there, but in here. So what hope is there? Thankfully, this is not dependent on you, not dependent on me, not on our work. This is why Haggai has this wonderful moment, if you see that in the verses in front of you. It's an invitation to the people then and to us. See that in verse 15? The word says, consider from this day onward. Actually, the better way to read it is, now set your heart from this day upward. In other words, have your gaze, your hearts, away from what you're doing, Israel, to what God has done and what God will do. So the people at the time are perhaps frustrated. And they think it's, if they do these things, somehow God should bless them. But God is making it very clear He's not, and there's a reason for it. 
And this is why it says and explains to them why they don't have much wine in their wine vats. Their produce are not bearing fruit. They thought they should be experiencing blessing because they're God's people. Because of their religious works, their offerings. What God is doing in this moment is reminding the people, is causing them, if you look at the passage in front of you, to look back, to consider this reality. God is the one who has lovingly disciplined them. God is the one who has struck their produce. God, like a loving father, is disciplining his children to call them back to him. The very curses here that are mentioned in the passage in front of us, some commentators call covenant curses. The point of these things is actually to cause the people to grab their attention to return to God. It's God's loving discipline to them, to get their attention, to make them realize they are in sin and they need to turn, they need to repent. But you know what? They didn't. Rather, they kept doing the religious things and wonder, why are we not being blessed? For them, God had become a means to an end. And some even say, perhaps they were thinking, due to the lack of harvest, they were actually keeping from God what was required, the very best, for their own interests, their own needs. Friends, this is what sin does. Sin is much more than the odd swear word here and there. What sin does is the posture that says, God, I will be God. Sin actually causes us to look even more towards ourselves to be our salvation rather than towards God and His grace and forgiveness. So in verse 18, there's this call from God. From getting them to look to the past, there's a move now towards the future. They confronted their unclean people Yet they serve a gracious God. God promises them from curse, he moves to blessing. And now it's pointing towards the horizon. What is to come? A gracious blessing. Why is this blessing coming? Is it because of them? No. It's his grace towards them. His command to them is to set their hearts, to turn back to him. This is language that we're familiar in Christian world of repentance. It's a picture of God's gracious provision for a people, despite of the reality of them being sinners and unclean people. Dear friends, this is a beautiful picture of grace. It's a beautiful picture of the God of the Bible. He is holy. He hates sin. He cannot even be close to sin. In reality, all of us, we defile everything that we touch. We are stained with this reality of sin. Yet in His holiness, God of the universe, in grace, moves towards sinful people. He offers restoration. Not on our terms, or your terms, but His. And the promise of bearing fruit is not as much dependent on them, and that's what the passage says. God is the one who promises. This hasn't happened yet. And He says it will happen as they turn back to Him. This is God saying in the passage in front of us, if you had a diary, the people of Israel, the priests, Haggai, mark this day in your diary. I will restore you. But then what God does in the last few verses is pointing to a more wonderful and glorious horizon that is to come. That's what you have in verses 20 to 23. When the word of the Lord came 
second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, speaking to Surubabbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth, and to overthrow the kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations, and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one of them by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shatil, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Friends, what we are seeing now in these ending verses is a wonderful, powerful picture of our gracious God. This is the God who brings order back to chaos. That's a promise of God moving. This, this language of the Lord of hosts throughout the Old Testament is the one who goes into battle for his people. The very language of what we have here, of the heavens and the earth shaking, is like the language of God himself coming down. The idea of kingdoms who think they're mighty are overthrown. Kingdoms and nations who see themselves as strong, shown by their military power, will be overthrown. This is a picture of God going into battle. It's so powerful that God's enemies will be destroying themselves. Now, if you know the Old Testament, particularly for the people then, this is very familiar language. God is using deliberate language that they know. This idea of overthrowing, it's the same language that God says when he spoke of Sodom and Gomorrah. The idea again of throwing out is the idea of what God said to Joshua regarding the Canaanites, as Joshua was used by God to conquer that land. The idea of chariots. If you think about it, again, as we went through Exodus, that picture of the chariots destroyed in the Red Sea, it's the language, as again, of God confusing the very enemies of Israel as they ended up fighting themselves. Friends, what we're doing, seeing here is, for the people then, and it's a beautiful reminder for us as well, God's past acts are a wonderful reminder to you and I that He is faithful to His people. And He will act. And the promise here is, for the people then, that God will go into battle against them and all their enemies. He will make things right. See, for the people then, their apathy, their religious works, led them to believe they could save themselves. And what they're doing now is God's confronting them with their sin. They're confronted also at the same time of God's grace. The one, despite of them, will keep his promise. He does then. What about today? What about now? Have you ever wondered and asked, where is God now? A few weeks ago, my family and I went away for a little break. And I tried to keep away from all the headlines. And I came home and I heard there's a nation that might potentially go to war. Various cases of COVID rising. And the idea of what uncertainty may look like for many of us this year. And knowing as well in our pastoral theme, there are traumatic things going in our church family. I mean, as Jeff shared earlier about the importance of forgiveness, knowing that there is actually conflict and issues in our own church or family or amongst brothers and sisters and for some of us we look at this year and it feels as though (sighs) we're a bit worn out already and it's only the end of January friends the, the passage in front of us is a wonderful reminder 
not only is God at work in the past, but he's actually at work actively now. God is at work at saving and delivering his people. He has done of old and he will do it again. Perhaps we might sit here and think, well, I'm not really sure about this. If only God would act like this, then people would know and people would see who he is. Or perhaps you're thinking this personally. God, are you really there? What does it mean that you will shake the heavens and, of the, and, and the earth? Oh God, I wish you would. I mean, look at the wicked. Look at the things that they're getting away with. Look at those who reject you. Oh Lord, would you go Haggai style on them? Maybe you don't say it like that, but I have. See, what we have got in the last few verses, God's revealing the gracious God that he is. He's the one who will go to battle for his people. He will go to battle against the enemies of his people. You've got to remember, by this time, the people of Israel had thought that the line of the kings and the succession has ended. That God is no longer showing favor to them. It seemed as though the very line of David and the Davidic covenant has seemed to be over. It feels as though God has abandoned his people. Have you ever felt that? I know I have. Well, listen to the conversation. What we're doing is we're eavesdropping into a conversation God is having. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, and make you like a signet ring. I've chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. What we're seeing, friends, is God showing his gracious restoration to a people then but a restoration that will have ramifications for all of eternity. So this person, Zerubbabel, is not a big deal. You see that in the text. He was a governor. He was a descendant, though, of David. Now, you've got to remember that this is not someone you would choose necessarily as a king, actually. Yet God uses his language of seal and signet. It's an image of God saying, I'm restoring my way, my terms. Zerubbabel is experiencing God's grace. The very language of choosing is God electing, is choosing. God's renewing his ancient commitment to God's act of grace towards his people through this governor. And he's reminding them, don't fear. It's a reminder in the darkness of a sin-filled world and then the very acts of unclean hands, God is at work. He's bringing life and hope. His grace is at work. Zerubbabel was chosen by God to take this task of rebuilding God's house. He's a governor. He's not a king. The kings should have done this. Rather than building his own home, he heeded the loving rebuke of God, and God graciously used him. The very choosing of Zerubbabel was done by God to display it's his grace to display his restorative power, but also to reveal it's all part of his ultimate plan. His plan to ultimately bring defeat to the ultimate enemy that we all have in sin and Satan, where there would come a greater king, the very king whose every good work the Father would be pleased with. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. 
you have a very famous passage that I'm sure many of you spend time reading, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It begins like this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in verses 2 to 6, it describes how that genealogy goes all the way back. And then finally in verse 5, it says, And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So this is the king, right? And then from David comes Solomon. Then you have all of these other kings. And you have in verse 11, And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon, this is the moment here, where we're seeing in the very passage that we've had, then in verse 12, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shatil, and Shatil, the father of who? Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abu, and Abu, the father of Elakim, and Elakim, the father of Ezor, and Ezor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Elud, and Elud, the father of Elazar, and Elazar, the father of Mahatan, and Mahatan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Out of this line would become the full display of God's grace in flesh. In Jesus Christ, who would come to an unclean people, to an unclean world. Jesus Christ, no form of majesty attract people to him. He didn't take a high lofty position, but humbled himself to willing to become a servant. The one who was willing to become unclean because of your sin and my sin. His holy good works would be the one that would be acceptable to the Father. And he did it perfectly for the Father's glory. He's the lamb who was sacrificed for your sin and my sin. Jesus Jesus Christ is the one who the prophet Isaiah described in this way. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. It is through Jesus Christ's world-shaking, glorious, clean work, the ultimate enemy would be defeated. And he then invites us to put our trust in him, invites us to worship him, and to join then in his work. Not because of our work, because of his work, his grace. He is greater, he's the glorious cream. And he brings true restoration and true grace to all who put their trust in him. As one author put it, God shook the heavens and the earth and established a new reality. Is that still true for you today? What is our hope in today, friends? When we see as though the world is in uproar, or perhaps we feel as though evil and sin are conquering. When even the very scene of the cross is a reminder, the powers of evil and hatred thought they had won because of the blindness of sin, and they could not see the beautiful, glorious, redemptive plan of the God of the universe being fulfilled in His Son. This is how God was going to shake the kingdoms and the principalities and power through Jesus' death and his resurrection. So if you're in Christ, no matter what may occur in this world, in our very state, in our lives, Christ is the king who still reigns. And if you're in him, our value and importance is forever established, both in our joys, both in our trials, and in our sufferings. 
This week as I prepared the sermon, I came across this um, wonderful little bit of article. And I want you to just hear this. What can now threaten those who belong to this Christ? What can threaten us to make our lives meaningless and irrelevant? If Christ has thus died and been raised from the dead, then his ultimate victory over all principalities and powers is sure. We have value and importance that is forever established. No political authority can stand against him. No false religions. Power can withstand his might. Even the powerful effects of the curse that we see all around us. Sorrow, broken relationships, famine, sickness, wars, cancer, even death itself cannot hold God's people captive. The power was broken once and for all at the cross. If you are a Christian, you are chosen in Christ. And therefore, as a precious to God, as the royal seal on king's hand, what then can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. For those who trust in Christ, death itself is merely the doorway into glorious eternity in his presence. Why then are we so easily captivated and terrified by our idols? Why do we so fear the rejection of people when we have acceptance with God? If God has so loved us, then rejection by a father, a mother, or a child, or a dear friend is put in different perspective. Why do we exult or fret over possessions that will rot and rust and shatter when we have an eternal inheritance that is beyond price? If God has prepared a glorious inheritance for us, then the loss of a home or a car or other precious possession takes on a different light. Why do we tremble even at the mention of death? As if it still had a power to do us harm. Death itself is merely the gateway to eternal life. If God has declared us more than conquerors in all things, then why are we slow to take him as his burden? Believe the precious promise he's given us. We often forget his past faithfulness. We often forget the signs of his present reality in the cross and the resurrection. That is why we need to be reminded of His grace every day. If you're a follower of Christ, have you and I at all in any way fallen back to thinking our religious works are what makes us right before a holy God? My invitation to you is consider this. Look back to His grace. Rest in His grace. Rest in what Christ has done. If you're a weary follower of Christ, do you feel as though every day is just a battle? I have some news for you. Welcome to the Christian life. That's the reality. But the call for you and I is to be faithful and obedient as God calls us to in the everyday little things in life because of His grace to you. And guess what? He sent His helper, the Holy Spirit, to empower us to help to live for Christ. To those of us who often feel as though the accuser stands over you, bringing past sins that you've done, calling out to you that saying that you're useless, will never amount to anything. Dear friend, bring before them these words. Remind yourself of who you are in Christ, not because of what you've done, because of his work, and rest in that. To all followers of Jesus, our labor for our God is not about receiving blessings. It's not. 
He's not some sort of magic genie. But what we're doing is because of his love for us, we move out to serve him. In doing so, we need to be remembered we are loved in Christ. God is the sovereign God who calls to love and serve him for his glory. Our labor and faith is done in order that through our words and actions, people are pointed back to Jesus, not us. And our only motivation is on that day when we will hear, well done and good faithful servant. You've been faithful over little, I'll set you over much. This is the motivation for every Christian. We are an unclean people who have experienced His grace in Jesus. And we have Jesus' identity transferred to us. And now He invites us, not in our own strength, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, to live, to serve, and do His work in this world. Would you join with me in prayer? Oh, Father God, You are wonderful and merciful. You are holy and You are just. If it wasn't for Christ and his beautiful, glorious work, we would all be undone. And in light of that, help us to live, serve, not for our sakes, but for your glory. For those of us who need to repent, move us, Holy Spirit, to that. For those of us who need to hear the wonderful, glorious truths of who we are in Christ, please help us. And for those of us who don't know you, Convict our hearts of our sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.